I'm Pastor Michael. Our text is Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 15 through 28. I'm going to read it for you. It's, it's printed for you in your bulletin. It's also going to be on your screens. Um, let me just set up very briefly the context. Last week, if you'll remember, verse 14 talks about offering sacrifices at the tabernacle, and then we're going to transition to verse 15. So let me read it for you. However, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your towns as much as you desire, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he, that he has given you. The, the unclean and clean may eat of it as of the gazelle and as of the deer, only you shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. You may not eat within your towns the tithe of your grain or of your wine or of your oil or the firstborn of your herd or your flock or any of your vow offerings that you vow or your freewill offerings or the contribution that you present, but you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God will choose you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, and the Levite who is within your towns. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. Take care that you do not neglect the Levite as long as you live in your land. When the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he has promised, and you say, I will eat meat because you crave meat, you may eat meat whenever you desire. If the place that the Lord your God will choose to put his name there is too far from you, then you may kill any of your herd or your flock which the Lord has given you, as I have commanded you, and you may eat within your towns whenever you whenever you desire, just as the gazelle or the deer is eaten. These are game meats, right? So the rules of sacrifice don't apply to them. You, so you may eat it. The unclean and the clean alike may eat of it. These are uh, ceremonial designations for people going to the tabernacle. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life, and you shall not eat the life with the flesh. You shall not eat it. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. You shall not eat it that all may go well with you and with your children after you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. But the holy things, these are the tithes, that are due from you, and your vow offerings you shall take, and you shall go to the place that the Lord will choose and offer your burnt offerings, the flesh and the blood, on the altar of the Lord your God. The blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God, but the flesh you may eat. Finally, be careful to obey all these words that I command you, that it may go well with you and your children after you forever when you do what is right, when it's good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. This is the word of God. All right. We are doing a sermon series in the book of Deuteronomy. And we are going chapter by chapter all the way through. And in Deuteronomy, the people of Israel are on the cusp of entering the promised land. And chapters 1 through 11, which we've looked at this past year, is basically this long sermon by Moses in which he's imploring the people to obey, to faithfully keep all of the commands. And then starting in chapter 12, we get to the actual laws. These are what we call the case laws. These are specific rules and regulations that govern, that dictate um, all aspects of life 
And there are a lot of them. Um, if you add the second half of Exodus, if you add uh, all of Leviticus and portions of Numbers, they've counted them up precisely. There are 613 specific and separate laws, very exacting, uh, very detailed laws. Now, this is a huge challenge for Christians. Because these 613 laws, what do we do with them? And to be honest, when you read them, it can be tedious. Uh, because it doesn't seem relevant. It doesn't seem to have anything to do with the Christian life. And so I think, you know, for a lot of us, we relegate them to obscurity. We treat them as unreadable or at the very least incomprehensible. And I want you to know, this is why we are preaching through Deuteronomy. And we're going to preach through all of it. And this gets me really excited, okay? This is my passion, okay? This is what I love to do. And my goal, and this is the goal of all of the pastors, you know, this is what we discussed as we were planning this series. Our goal is to show you the relevance, the beauty, and the power of these laws. And we want to show you how they connect to the New Testament, Because the Bible is this profoundly interconnected text. It's like a web where every verse is connected to all of the other verses. And then ultimately, I want to show you what these laws tell us about Jesus Christ and what these laws show us about the Christian life. Okay? So we've already read the text. Here's my outline. I have three points. Number one, we're going to look at the rules on food. Number two, we're going to look at a particular rule. Do not consume blood. And then number three, we're going to see that actually we must consume blood. So first, the rules on food. So as I said, the Old Testament contains 613 separate and specific commands that have been carefully categorized and enumerated. And 137 of them are related to food. How you to prepare food, what foods are permissible, when and where you can eat them. 137, that is fully 22% of the laws in the Bible are about eating. What is going on? These 137 laws are what are called kosher laws. If you have Jewish friends, if you read the labels on uh, on food and grocery markets, you're probably familiar with this term. Kosher is simply the Hebrew word that means clean or pure. It's about uh, the rules of what foods are acceptable. And when you read these rules, they're very strange to modern readers. And the reason why, and I want to be gentle with you here, is because as modern people, we have an unhealthy relationship to food. Uh, There's a really excellent book by Michael Pollan called The Omnivore's Dilemma. It was published 15 years ago. It sat on the, New York, uh, the bestseller lists for a long time. It had a huge impact, a lot of influence. Many books have followed in his wake. And he makes the case, I think very persuasively, that modern people, we modern people, are completely disconnected from how, how our food is made. 
you know, first of all, food for the most part is grown and raised in these industrialized farms. And then they're processed and they're, you know, manufactured basically in factories with chemical additives. And then they're sort of wrapped with preservatives in these plastic wrappings. And so the whole thing is a very depersonalized process. This is how modern people eat. But in the ancient world, you have to understand, it was an agrarian society. Virtually everyone was a farmer or a shepherd or a fisherman. And they were deeply in touch with their food. They raised their food with their own hands, by their own labor. And so they had a very intimate, you know, tactile relationship to food. And not only that, you have to understand, food was a dominant part of the economy. So that food was literally money. Okay? You paid your taxes in food. You would tithe in food. So that what you grew in the field, what you raised on your pastures, that was your income. Okay? That was your livelihood. And therefore, food is not just what you eat. You know, for modern people, our food is plentiful, it's relatively cheap, it's instant. For the most part, we hardly think about it, you know. So often, I'll just pop a microwave dinner in the microwave and then presto changeo in five minutes, I'm eating a meal out of this plastic bin. Or, we'll dress it up. We'll make it this really expensive experience and we'll go to a fancy restaurant so that we have this schizophrenic relationship to food, right? It's either really cheap, relatively, or it's really expensive. But in the ancient world, food was, at the same time, ordinary. It was just a part of ordinary life. And also, it was very effortful, very costly. It was not cheap. And therefore, ancient people thought about food all the time. It occupied a major part of their daily life. And therefore, listen to me, the reason why 22% of the laws in the Old Testament are about food is because food is about life. It's about your identity. It's about what you value. It's about your relationship to God and your relationship to other people. And we're going to see this all throughout the the Deuteronomy series. Food is about life. And so this brings us to our passage. And our passage today is about two things. It's about food that is dedicated to God. And then it's about a particular kind of food, which is what are the rules on eating meat? Okay? We're going to spend the bulk of our time on meat. So first... Food that is dedicated to God. Look at verse 17. It says, You may not eat within your towns the tithe of your grain, or of your wine, or of your oil, or the firstborn of your herd, or of your flock, or any of your vow offerings that you vow, or your free will offerings, or the contribution that you present. But you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God will choose. So, first rule, okay? Rule number one, do not eat the tithe, okay? Don't eat the tithe. Now, what is the tithe? The, uh, the word tithe literally means one-tenth. That's the Hebrew word here. 
And this word tithe is actually an old English word, you know, from the King James era that we preserved, which literally just means tenth that we've kept in the Bible. And what the Bible says repeatedly is that 10% of your agricultural produce belongs to God. And when you give it to him, it is your act of devotion. But of course, there's a strong temptation to eat your own tithe, right? To keep your tithe. And the Bible says that is prohibited because what you're doing then is you're stealing from God. Read Malachi 3.8. There's some very strong language there about what God thinks about that. However, there is an exception to this rule. Now, most of your tithes would go to support the Levites. These are, you know, the priests of the people. But you can eat your tithe under this condition, which is only at the place where God would put his name. And the text here is talking about the tabernacle. This is the center of worship for the people. And eventually, it would settle down in Jerusalem. So basically, this rule is you can eat the tithe at Jerusalem, And only for this purpose, the text says, of rejoicing before the Lord with your family. That's verse 18. What is that talking about? The Bible outlines uh, these religious festivals. There are seven of them, like Yom Kippur or Passover. And these are basically prescribed um, worship feasts that you can eat your tithe there. And so that's the first rule. The tithe, off limits. Don't eat your tithe. Except in worship in Jerusalem. And there's more to be said on that, but I'm going to leave it alone there because there's a whole chapter on tithing in Deuteronomy 14. And we'll get to it there and we'll unpack all the elements of it. Some of you are saying, what Sunday are are you going to preach on Deuteronomy 14? I might not be there. Don't worry. I'll let you know in advance. Okay. But let's go to the second rule. The rules on eating meat. And here, let me give you some of the context to understand. You have to understand that in the ancient world, meat was relatively rare. Again, they did not have industrialized farms. They didn't know how to, you know, pack, squeeze animals into these stalls and then pump them full of antibiotics to keep them alive, okay? It's hard for us to imagine But meat was really rare and precious. And it was particularly rare during the wilderness journey where there were no pastures, there was no grass. And so the text here is looking ahead to life in the promised land. And in the promised land, the people would settle down and they would experience such prosperity that meat would be plentiful. That was like an amazing concept to the ancient people. Now, it would still be relatively rare compared to modern standards. Uh, In the ancient world, people would typically eat meat about once a month, maybe once every two or three weeks if you're particularly well off. And you would only eat meat on social occasions, like at a wedding feast. Um, Because you have to remember, there was no refrigeration. So once you slaughter a cow... You have to eat the whole cow right away. So you would invite everybody and it would be a whole party. And so in the promised land, the text is saying, meat will be much more accessible. It will be much more available. Let me pause for the plane.
Okay. So in the wilderness, because meat was so exceptionally rare, all of it was dedicated, was designated for sacrifices at the tabernacle. And how that would work is they would take the fat portions, which was the best part of the meat, and they would burn it up entirely so that it was dedicated to God. And then they would take the blood and they would sprinkle it or pour it on the altar. And then the rest of the animal they would eat during these religious festivals. And it was this huge communal, joyful experience, this huge meal. But in the promised land, because meat would be so plentiful, it doesn't all have to be sacrificed at the tabernacle. That's what the text is saying. You could treat it, you know, it, it's, it's unlike the tithe. You could just eat it in your towns and villages, you know, because of the distance as well, right? The people would not all be clustered in tents around the tabernacle, so that you could just eat it as part of ordinary life for whatever occasion, for whatever reason that you, you desire. You can just eat meat. The only prohibition remaining is don't eat the blood. Don't eat the blood of the meat. Which leads me to my second point. No consuming blood. For the rest of our time, we're going to talk about blood. There are two important verses here. Verse 16 and verse 23. So let me read it to you, okay? Verse 16 says, You can eat meat. Only, it says, you shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. Verse 23. Only be sure you do not eat the blood. For the blood is the life. And you shall not eat the life with the flesh. So, this is really interesting. Let me pause for the second play. I know it doesn't bother others, but its I feel like I'm battling the sound. All right. So what these verses are saying is that the people of God are strictly forbidden from eating blood in their meat. I know some of you are saying, technically, isn't that impossible? There's always minute amounts of blood in, in, you know, in, the, in the meat. Yes, okay, this is a symbolic ceremony, and how it would work is that when you slaughter an animal, you would slit its throat, I'm sorry to be so graphic, and then you would drain as much of the blood as possible, and that's what this law is commanding. You have to understand that this prohibition is super, it's really strict, It's repeated about a dozen different times throughout the Bible. And then in Leviticus 17, it says that the penalty for breaking this law is death. So it's super serious. Now why? What's the reason for this law? I think there are two reasons for this prohibition. Number one, it's a limitation. And then number two, it's a provision. So let me go through it. Number one, it's a limitation. Verse 23 says that blood represents life. And all of life belongs to God. This is why the people were to pour out the blood upon the earth like water. It's a very significant um, gesture. Do you guys remember the uh, story in 2 Samuel chapter 23? 2 Samuel 23 is all about the exploits of David's mighty men. 
And the most famous story in that chapter is one day, three of David's mighty men happened to overhear David just sighing and wishing that he could drink from the well in Bethlehem, which is his hometown. And so these three mighty men, they, without consulting David, they slip out into the night, they pass through enemy lines, and then while they're fighting the enemy, they draw water from the well, and then they bring it back to David. Now, what does David do with this water? You can imagine, right? he's filled with emotion. And he says, I am unworthy of this water. And he pours out the water upon the earth. And what he's saying here is that this water, this precious blood-bought water, belongs only to God. It's one of the most beautiful scenes in the Bible. It's this picture of friendship and loyalty. Now, what does it mean that life belongs to God? It means that life, and we're talking about not just human life, but animal life, does not belong to man. It is not ours to dispose of as we will. It belongs to God. And by refraining from the blood through this ceremony, and you have to understand, most people slaughtered their own animals. They didn't have professional butchers. So that through this tactile ritual, they would be developing this lifelong habit that would impress in their minds this truth that life belongs to God. And therefore, all of life is precious and it must be respected. And what that means, and listen to me, is that human beings may not kill indiscriminately. We may not kill wastefully. And so this is a check on consumption. This is a rebuke on a culture of unlimited consumption so that through this inefficient ritual, man would learn to live in harmony with the natural world. Some of you are saying, you know, this sounds a lot like animal rights. And actually it's really interesting and we're going to get to it in the later chapters of Deuteronomy But actually, there are numerous provisions in Deuteronomy on the humane treatment of animals. Cruelty to animals is forbidden. And the reason why is because the Bible has a fairly high view of animal life. There's a whole theology behind why that is. And we're going to get to it, okay, in the coming months. So that's the first point. There's a limitation. Secondly, there's a provision. So what is the blood for? The text tells us in verse 27. It says, The blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God, but the flesh you may eat. So the reason why blood was prohibited is that it was reserved for making sacrifices to God. And the key verse here is Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. It's so important. I have it printed in your bulletin. You can follow along. Let me read it for you. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The ultimate purpose 
of blood is for atonement. Now, what is atonement? Atonement is another old English word that we've preserved for the Bible. It literally means at one mint. It means to make one. It means reconciliation. The Hebrew word here, actually, that's what it literally means. It means reconciliation. It means the restoration of a broken relationship. So that what has been separated by sin is made one again. At one mint atonement. And what this is saying is that sin has separated us from God. Because sin is rebellion against God's rule. And when you rebel against God, you will experience separation, right? Because you're running away from God. And you will experience death because God is the source of all life. By the way, this principle applies to all relationships. If you sin against your spouse, you will break the marriage and you will experience divorce. If you sin against your friend, you will lose that friendship and you will experience loneliness. Sin is separation and death. But blood, the Bible says, makes us one with God again. How does it do that? Listen very carefully. Blood represents life. And the life of the animal stands in our place. Do you guys remember that amazing um, image of the scapegoat? You've probably heard this expression before. Scapegoat, it comes from Leviticus chapter 16. And Leviticus 16 is describing the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And on that day, the high priest would place his hands on a goat. And then he would confess all the sins of the people. And the text says that as he is doing this, he is symbolically transferring the sins of the people onto the goat. And then he would release the goat into the wilderness. That's why it's called scapegoat, because they would allow it to escape. And then in the wilderness, that goat would perish and die. And in this way, the sins of the people are atoned for because the penalty for sin, which is separation and death, is satisfied. This is what we call substitutionary atonement. So that our sins are atoned for, not by our death, but by the substitutionary death of an animal. That is the whole point of the Old Testament, okay? You can summarize the whole Old Testament by this single image. The sins of the people are placed on an innocent animal and then that innocent animal is put to death. This is why eating blood is forbidden because blood is for atonement. Even for animals that are not to be sacrificed at the tabernacle, right? Even for animals that you use for a wedding feast or for whatever occasion, do you see through this ritual, every time an Israelite slaughters an animal for a meal, they're thinking about their sins. They're thinking about atonement as they pour the blood out upon the earth like water. So that's the second point. We must not consume blood. That leads me to my third point. We must consume blood. So here I want to take you to the New Testament. And I want to 
read to you one of the most shocking passages in the Bible. Especially if you understand Deuteronomy 12. If you understand Leviticus uh, 17, if you understand this, this prohibition, it is shocking. I want to read to you uh, John chapter 6. And before we read the salient verses, let me set up the story, okay, the context. So John 6 is the feeding of the 5,000. If you remember the story, Jesus miraculously multiplies food, five loaves of bread, two fish, and he feeds this massive crowd. And then the text says the next day the crowd comes back. And they ask Jesus for another sign. They said, prove to us you're the Messiah. Moses gave the people bread from heaven every day. Do it again, and we'll believe that you're the Messiah. Jesus responds. He says, I am the bread of life. He says, I am the true food that will nourish your souls, that will give you eternal life. And then the crowd says, what are you talking about? Do you want us to eat your body? And in verse 52, this is what the text says. It says, the people disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus responds, and this is really typical of how Jesus responds, because basically he says, okay, you are offended. Let me double down on the offense. And in verse 53, he says the most shocking, the most offensive thing you can say to a devout Jew. This is what he says, listen. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. For whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus says, you have to drink my blood. Now to a devout Jew, for who for all of his life, he has diligently and conscientiously avoided blood, who all of his life, it has been pounded into him, this rule, so that it's woven into his very being, what Jesus said is the most vile, the most disgusting, the most outrageous thing you can possibly say. And then the text tells us that when the crowd heard this, they were, they took great offense. And they all dispersed back to their homes. And the text says that even many of Jesus' followers abandoned him on that day. And then there's this wonderful scene. Jesus turns to his disciples, his 12 disciples, his most intimate friends, and he says, do you want to go away as well? And do you remember how Peter responds? He says, Lord, you have the words of life. To whom shall we go? Here's the great truth of Christianity. The reason why blood is prohibited in the Old Testament is to prepare us 
for the New Testament, for when Jesus Christ will offer us his own blood. The whole point of the Old Testament is that it's giving us metaphor after metaphor. It's giving us the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement, the Passover lamb, the whole system of animal sacrifices at the tabernacle and at the temple. All of these images are pointing to Jesus Christ dying on the cross. Don't you see? He is the ultimate sacrifice. And it is, and it is his, his blood that makes atonement. You see, the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament were always, always just foreshadowing. Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is impossible, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired but a body, my body, you have prepared for me. The blood prohibition in the Old Testament was never meant to be permanent. It was always temporary. It was always a placeholder. You know, it's like a blank space on a document, on a sheet of paper. The purpose of the blank space is not for it to be blank forever, but eventually, later on, you would write the final answer. And the final answer is Jesus Christ and His substitutionary death on the cross. And so here is the gospel. When you believe in Him, when you trust in His atoning work on the cross, you will surely be saved. And your sins will be atoned for. Because the penalty of your sins, which is separation and death, has been fully satisfied in Jesus Christ. And you will be reconciled with God. You will be made one with Him again. That's the gospel. That's what this law is all about. I want to close by reading to you John chapter 6, verse 40. Same passage in John. Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Let's pray. We recognize... O Lord, that scattered throughout the Old Testament are types and shadows pointing to the ultimate reality of Jesus Christ. Everything finds its resolution in Him. He is the answer to every question. He is the center upon which all objects rotate and find their purpose. He is the true food, the true meal, which when we take it in, gives us life, eternal life. To him be glory and honor forever. In his name we pray, amen.